Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today in terms of protests and double standards and emergency powers and such things. And something you and I have talked about from time to time over the years is um, how much we Americans take our First Amendment for granted at times and how much we take our uh, free speech culture for granted as well. And I read something today that I thought had to be made up. I thought it just had to be made up, but it's not made up, apparently. Um, So there's a panic in New York City right now um, over this music uh, subgenre of rap known as drill. Mm. And apparently various drill performers have been shooting one another. It's social media taunts and, and that kind of stuff that spills over into real life. And the mayor of New York um, proposes to ban uh, this music, essentially, and to ban particularly the videos and social media communications associated with it, which is, of course, nuts. Um, we don't really do that in this country, and mayors certainly don't have the, the power to do it either. But it's different in, in, in your home country. And um, so there's apparently a, a, a rapper in the UK who is, as we speak, legally required to submit lyrics to the government for approval for bringing out new music um, as, um, I assume, a condition of parole or probation or something like that. And that, it should be said, is the greatest legal sin under the First Amendment in the United States. Because, Prior restraint. Yeah, exactly. Because even even the speech that is deemed to be beyond the pale, which is few and far between, but does include certain incitement, and there are libel laws, well, they're not many. Uh, and apparently they don't mean a gosh-darn yeah. <laughs> thing. Uh, if you if you libel someone who is politically unpopular, like uh, Sarah Palin, and you're the New York Times. Right, but the prior restraint part of this is illegal in every single circumstance. You simply cannot preemptively impose censorship in the United States. You can, in very limited circumstances, punish people. Mm-hmm. But the the British don't have the same reflexive respect for the First Amendment that Americans do. And I understand that Americans don't have enough. And I write about that a lot. But compared yeah. to the British, they do. I mean, this guy, I don't know if we discussed it on the podcast, Jimmy Carr, who told his joke yeah. about the Holocaust... The culture minister in the British government, who sits in the cabinet, came out and said, well, we're looking at a law that will censor Netflix. Yeah. And no one said anything. Astonishing. Indeed. Um They weren't they weren't listening to John Milton apparently. But um Well actually before we move on, can I just read you a story I, I saw that I just thought was incredible uh, sure. late last week from Britain. So I don't know if you're familiar with what happened at the Grenfell Tower. Yes, London. I know I know quite a bit about this. So this woman, Tara Ahmed, who's fifty one, lives <laughs> in Britain. She wrote on social media in the days after the fire, which killed 72 people, that the victims had been, and I quote, burned alive in a Jewish sacrifice. Not great, Bob. 
Not what I would think or say. She's been sent hmm. to jail. That is a counterintuitive reading in the British building code. <laughs> She's been sent to jail. She had a trial at the Old Bailey, which is the most famous courthouse in London. She was found guilty of two counts I, of stirring I've seen up. V for Vendetta. I know what the Old Bailey is. There you go. She was found guilty of two counts of stirring up racial hatred. And the prosecutor told the jury, which agreed with him, that her two Facebook posts from 2017 crossed the line as to what is acceptable in a liberal society. (laughs) People are impervious to irony. It's astonishing. I think that is deeply embarrassing. I'm embarrassed as a Brit, originally, by that. I, of course, have no time for what she said. She's a fool. But they held a trial at the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey that has hosted the trials of serial killers and spies and money launderers and cat burglars. The, the old Bailey that appears in great British movies and great British novels. They held a trial for some moronic person's social media. <sighs> what? What? And they sent her to jail. And the prosecutor said, we have a liberal society in which you may say what you want, but not that. And won the case. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think these things are related. Um, You know, the idea of prior restraint has been defended in American practice on emergency grounds so that the government should come in and stop people from publishing things that would do irreparable harm to national security. The uh, kind of textbook example is, you know, atomic bomb secrets back in the day and that sort of thing. And uh, as I as I argue in, in my little book, The Smallest Minority, this is a a troubling uh, line of argument because the potential uh, for harm can be defined in such a promiscuous way as to enable would-be censors and suppressors and punishers to go after almost anybody they want on the flimsiest of pretexts. And I think... That is what we are seeing at the moment with this extraordinary situation in Canada. And before I I pitch this over to you and let you talk about the Canadian emergency laws and such, um, as you know, I'm not a fan of protests in general and crowds and mob scenes and things like that. And people who are blocking public roads and bridges and such. I would like to see them arrested and taken away because I believe we should keep the bridges and the roads open. And I believe that we should do that irrespective of what the underlying complaint um, related to their protest is. Of course, we haven't seen this. The, um, you know, the obvious point of comparison is the uh, Black Lives Matter protests that were uh, a big deal in, in, in 2020 in which the current Canadian prime minister not only didn't invoke the emergency act as i recall he actually participated in said protests now the canadian version of those protests was not nearly as lawless um 
as the as the U.S. version was. I don't think there was, you know, the arson and looting and, and that stuff, um, at least not in the, in the news accounts that I recall seeing. But there was, you know, there were arrests. There was lawlessness. There were people breaking the law and committing acts of vandalism and blocking streets and, and that sort of thing. And we have some of that in these uh, so-called trucker protests, which, as I understand, don't actually involve a very large number of truckers, but people who are unhappy with Canadian uh, vaccine mandates and then other things that have become attached to the protest movement. As um, as I mentioned in my little write-up on this, one of the features of protests in our time is that everything ends up being about everything. So if there's a protest, it's about every list of complaints that people in one particular cultural camp have and never ends up being over one thing. And again, Black Lives Matter is a good example of this as well. It wasn't just about police misconduct. It ended up being anti-capitalism and, uh, you know, all, all the rest of that stuff. And, you know, uh, abortion rights were partly attached to it and all sorts of uh, other things. So Canada, I guess, has never invoked these emergency powers before, which seem to be designed for really, truly extraordinary situations like invasions or collapse of the national government or something like that, and not for a disruptive and uh, at times unruly, but by no means calamitous uh, protest. What do you think? So like you, I have been and I remain much less rah-rah about these protests than many on the right. I have a lot more sympathy for their complaint than you do i imagine Hmm. but i don't instinctively like disruptive protest and insofar as i do i think it's imperative to distinguish between protest and violating the rights of others protest is fine speech is fine Declining to work is fine as long as you're prepared to deal with the consequences. Go on strike. Withdraw your labor. That's a part of being a free man. In fact, the opposite slavery. But blocking a bridge is different. And as such, I don't for a moment believe that the Canadian government should have its hands tied behind its back when dealing with lawless behavior. But there is a big difference between the quotidian application of state power, say, to reopen a bridge, and the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And the fact that Trudeau has gone there is absolutely extraordinary. This is a law that that he did so clearly because these people are perceived political enemies, not because of the dramatic reach or effect of their protest yes which is hardly unprecedented even in the relatively quiet history of canada yes this is a law that was passed in 1988 and has never been used not once that's 34 years without use until this week this law which was controversial at the time and should have been more on which later sets out two circumstances in which it may be invoked. The first one, and I quote, is in any situation that seriously endangers the lives, health or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. 
Second one is a circumstance that seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security and territorial integrity of Canada and that cannot be effectively dealt with under any law of Canada. Clearly, neither one applies. When you read those determinations, you think of a 9-11 or a coup or an invasion. There are many laws on the books that allow the police to clear a domestic blockade. Why has he, Trudeau that is, invoked this act? Because he wants to freeze the bank accounts of Canadian citizens without a court order. Yeah. Why? There's just no way that the truckers' protest, however good or bad it may be, matches the description of this law. And funnily enough, I went back and I read some Canadian law review articles. There's a sentence I've never uttered from <laughs> the late 80s and early 90s. And it's eerie how prescient so many of them are about how this law could plausibly be abused. The examples, the hypotheticals that are preferred are slightly different, of course. No one having seen COVID coming. But in one article from 1991, a professor writing in the Manitoba Law Journal suggests that an anti-nuclear protest in Vancouver could be so large and so uh, long-lived that the government could use the act to clear it on the grounds that it was disrupting economic activity and interfering with supply chains. And you read those words and you think, my goodness me. <laughs> now, this should yeah. not be particularly surprising to people such as you um, or me, because we don't like these sorts of emergency laws. And we always assume that they're going to be abused. But I think anyone who is more sanguine, people, for example, who were fine by and large with the Patriot Act, might look at this and say, hmm. Because if you put back doors into a constitutional order, they will, after a while, like Chekhov's gun, be used. We know this from history. And yeah, it took 34 uh, 34 years. But this act has now been invoked on precisely the political grounds that its critics at the time, uh, most of whom I think were not right wing, anticipated. Yeah. We have a less dramatic thing going on in the United States that I've written about a little bit where Congress wants the Biden administration to declare an end to the COVID public health emergency, which gives the federal government certain uh, emergency powers. And of course, the administration doesn't want to because executives that get expansive emergency powers almost never voluntarily give them up. They have to be forced into it. Now, I will admit that my subscription to the uh, various Manitoba law journals uh, have... have um, fallen into disuse i'm afraid um and my my knowledge of um emergency law in the united states is uh somewhat limited it's something i've been looking into because i want to write about it but i still don't really know uh very much about it so i know that there are certain civil libertarians in the united states some on the right some on the left 
who are concerned about the extent of uh, the powers contemplated by various federal emergency statutes. But I wonder if you could um, fill me in on some of the details there. Well, I think that a lot of the emergency powers that have been granted in the United States are less dramatic and probably less catastrophic to our Constitution, but in some ways far more likely to be used regularly than is the Emergency Act. As a rule, the United States is superior to Canada on this question because we have a written constitution and a strong system of judicial review. There are exceptions to this, and I understand that at many points in our history, the constitution has simply been ignored. That's what happened in Dred Scott. That's what happened during Jim Crow. It's what happened in the Korematsu case with the internment of the Japanese in World War II and so on and so forth. But as a rule, there are a better set of tools in the United States to push back against um, extreme uh, emergency powers. But our quotidian law is riddled with emergency powers, either labeled as such or implied. If you look through the U.S. code, you will find hundreds, thousands of references starting with the president shall or the president may. Congress, rather than keeping its power for itself, has given a lot of it away. Now, in the more modern era, that is partly because Congress is supine and feckless. But in the 50s and 60s and 70s, that was because Congress was terrified of a nuclear war or a fast-moving emergency. So, for example, the President of the United States is permitted to set tariffs on his own. Now, this is baffling. This would baffle James Madison. It would be as baffling to James Madison as if the President of the United States was allowed to set the tax rates on his own. Madison would say, this is a congressional function. How on earth could you have outsourced that? But if you look at the laws that consecutive presidents have used, including President Trump, and President Biden has continued a lot of this, despite his rhetoric during the campaign, the President of the United States is allowed to set tariff rates because he was given that power by Congress on the grounds that he might need to do so in an emergency, a supply chain an emergency, a war some sort of border dispute. This is crazy. We now know what happens. If you give the President of the United States the capacity in an emergency to set tariffs, the President of the United States, as a matter of course, will set tariffs without Congress. And we'll have a flip-flopping back and forth contingent upon who happens to have won the last election tariff policy. I think... That is a much bigger problem in the United States than the existence of some sort of backdoor to the Constitution. Now, there are, of course, laws that I strongly oppose, most of the Patriot Act, for example. But because the Constitution sits above Congress and because there are a whole host of judges in the way, I feel more secure in the 
um, country's ability to deal with the crisis without resorting to tyranny. Yeah, it's um, it's easy to be pessimistic and cynical and, uh, and and critical about American government and the American political system. And goodness knows, I am. But um, one of the things you really have to you know give three cheers for is that our system of checks and balances really has proved quite durable and robust. And um, we have the obvious abuse of the emergency uh, tariff powers and some other things like that. But if you know, think about it, we had um, in, in Trump a very uh, demagogic and authoritarian figure who was given a genuine national and indeed worldwide crisis. And um, on the flip side, we have a Democratic Party with similarly uh, demagogic and authoritarian ambitions, largely concentrated in Congress, less so in the executive. And even throughout that crisis and the other crises that we've um, seen before and after it, um, we didn't really get um, the sort of uh, emergency pretext arrogations of executive power that you might have expected, that you might have worried about. Um, you know, from 9-11 through COVID and and a dozen other things that we've we've gone through over the last couple of decades, we've really done, I think, a pretty good job of maintaining that system of, of checks and balances, even when you've got figures in power who are not particularly themselves inclined to uh, defer to them. It's just so deeply embedded in the architecture of how our government works and how our politics works that it's... Um, no, no system of protections is self-executing, but it's as close to a self-executing system maybe as as any you know political order has has ever seen. And when we have seen the executive branch try to usurp power, it's been knocked back. Yep. The executive branch tried to regulate the eviction system in every single state, county, and town in the United States, and the Supreme Court eventually said no. The executive branch tried to impose a mandate uh, via OSHA for which there was no statutory authority, and the Supreme Court said no, as did Congress, although they couldn't get past a filibuster, which is fine. You you mentioned something earlier that I think, I know we've we've dwelt on at at some length earlier, but it's probably worth repeating, that um, the offender here traditionally is, um, you know, the ambitious executive, but the real offender in our system is a lazy and supine Congress. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at the places where the president has, um, abused emergency powers, it's because he has been permitted to through statute. And, um, you know, he's, he's not created these things ex nihilo. They're the things that Congress has really set him up for. And uh, I think about the you know famous example of the um, I believe still extant tax on long distance telephone service through landlines. Not many people have those anymore. That was adopted through through statute, the regular process, but as an emergency measure to fund the Spanish American War. And it is still, I believe, on the books. We are not particularly good 
at repealing laws in the United States. And it is in part because of a dispositional conservatism that likes the status quo, whatever that status quo is. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, a famous book by Higgs called uh, Crisis and Leviathan. And, you know, the idea of the ratchet effect, in which you have some sort of emergency that may be legitimate, may be exaggerated, that um, leads to some sort of expansion, expansion of, of government power, often in the executive, but not always. And then after the emergency subsides, it either remains entirely or in part. You know, it never goes back all the way to the way things were before. This was true of the, you know, famous return to normalcy. It was true of, you know, the Eisenhower era of trying to unwind some of the extraordinary uh, things that had been done in response to the Great Depression and World War II. And I think it was true in the in the post-Cold War era as well, certainly where certain um, particular pieces of legislation and government programs, but also a more broadly speaking, kind of emergency mentality that had come to be regnant during the Cold War um, was somewhat dissipated and somewhat reversed, but but never never entirely. And legislatively, once yes. something is on the books, it develops a constituency. I always laugh when progressives say to me, well, why don't we just try this program I have in mind for a couple of years, and if it doesn't work, we'll give it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? I can't think of an example of that. A good one at the moment is pre-K, so-called universal pre-K, although it seems a lot of states wouldn't actually pick it up. Universal pre-K doesn't work, in my view. There's a lot of studies that have showed this. One study actually shows it harming the recipients. I I wouldn't be confident enough in my understanding of the methodology to endorse that. But I am fairly convinced that pre-K as instituted by government doesn't do very much. And even if it does, I don't think the federal government should be doing it, especially at the moment. And so I'm a no on pre-K. And when I tell people this, they say, well, why don't we just try it for a couple of years? But of course, first off, historically, there is absolutely no chance once it's put in place that it's going to be repealed. But secondly, what would that even look like? I mean, the federal government starts sending money out to states. Those states then pick it up. They hire the teachers. They build the schools. They get the kids into them. And then they decide, actually, this isn't working, so we'll stop it. Of course not. Those kids are now enrolled. Those teachers now have jobs. Those buildings have been built, and they have maintenance contracts on them. And you also will have the problem of anyone who stands up and says, this isn't working, let's stop it, will not be calmly greeted and told okay we tried that it didn't work they will be opposed to kindergartners they'll yes. be trying to take the apple out of johnny's mouth at and lunchtime said, there's a very strong constituency built in by the people who are getting paychecks from this stuff you know a couple of weeks ago i read i wish i could remember who it was it was some lefty writer who had a really odd sentence might have been the new york times about you know conservatives sweeping into power in the 1980s and undoing the new deal <laughs> really uh, that's not not how I remember the 80s at all. And I kind of think that, you know, a lot of the um, key programs, the New Deal seem to be very much. Yeah, also, it uh, would have been news to Ronald Reagan, who described himself <laughs> throughout the 1980s as a New Dealer. Right, yeah. But um, so I went and looked at, you know, the programs that are generally considered to be part of the New Deal and saw which ones had survived and which ones have been got rid of. And we have got rid of a few New Deal programs, largely things having to do with um, 
public arts and writers programs and, and things like that. Um, or other things that have been sort of wrapped up or rolled up into uh, other federal initiatives. But you know what? A lot of that stuff is still out there. Um, you know, and some of these things were um, measures that must have seemed like a good idea at the time, certainly, um, that seemed to be responses to persistent problems that were not being solved either by the market or by the states or by, you know, civil society. You know, you think about the generally economically backward state of the South, uh, you know, lack of things like electricity and uh, indoor plumbing in a lot of places and that sort of thing. Um, but it's a very, very different world now, of course. And uh, you can say it's a different world because the world changed and uh, capitalism did its thing. Or you can say it's a different world because the New Deal worked and these programs did what they were meant to accomplish. But in either Whichever explanation you like, the problems that a lot of these programs were constituted to solve have been solved or aren't, aren't exactly problems anymore. But, of course, the programs soldier on because they have um, perils and it's very difficult to get people to voluntarily give up the paycheck. The Tennessee Valley Authority still exists. It is private now, mm. finally. But it's still there. And I think that's another lesson that even if government does relinquish power or sells off what it's doing to the private sector it still shapes probably permanently the contours of the country yes it's not really possible for a federal government of this size to do things without creating a footprint yeah so my my thinking on this is that we have to really be very careful about what we decide as a genuine emergency and what um, justifies extraordinary measures. Um, I think you could pretty well make the case that the Great Depression was such a thing, although I wouldn't have chosen the sorts of programs that, that Franklin Roosevelt did. You can make the case for World War II. You can make the case for the Cold War. I'm not sure that the situation of drill wrappers in and around New York City is something over which we want to be suspending free speech. No, and, and even if it were, we can't. And that's the point of the First Amendment. Well, but in, in some ways we can, though. You know, so the mayor of New York um, had a very interesting sentence, I thought, where he said, we got Donald Trump off of Twitter because of the stuff that he was spewing. And I appreciated his use of the word we there because it dispenses with the illusion that this was just a corporate decision on Twitter's part and not part of a political campaign. Yeah, true. Um, so while he might not be able to pass a law or enact something like they have on that situation with that rapper in England who has to uh, – submit his lyrics beforehand, he can effectively shut down all sorts of communication by using political pressure and, and uh, other means to lean on companies to simply exclude people from various platforms and means of communication. You know, funnily enough, I am only, I suppose, interested in the people who wish to reform Section 230 and regulate social media when I see this sort of talk. I, I am a staunch defender of Section 230, about which an enormous amount of nonsense is spoken. I think that conservatives, by and large, are kidding themselves 
when they argue that Section 230 reform would help them, I think it would hurt them substantially because it would give private companies who own and operate digital services far more reason to exclude them. But when I see, say, Jen Psaki saying from the White House podium, as she did a few months ago, I don't think this person should be on Twitter, and I don't think that if you're excluded from Twitter, you should be allowed on any other social media platform. Then I wonder whether there's a role for government. And until such time as that happened, I would be opposed to it. But if we did have a system where the executive branch was conniving with what would essentially be a digital cartel to decide who could and could not be on social media writ large, then all of the market responses to proposals for regulation would would go out the window. And you could not say, go build your own Twitter, if you're then banned on that too. And I don't quite know where the line is, but I do think people who oppose that regulation, as I do so strongly, ought to be really careful before they, especially if they're in a position of authority, before they start using that we that you described. That is a different proposition. We is a different proposition. I, I start to get nervous when the mayor of New York says we. Twitter's a private company. It can do what it wants. And eventually it will be replaced in the market or supplemented in the market. But we... That's there is a point at which that becomes government using social media companies to achieve what it cannot do legally on its own. Yeah, it's certainly corporatism. Yeah, it's um, and that's really where we are, I think. Um, you know, as you and I have talked about quite a bit, that um, we've got so far a pretty good firewall in the courts um, in terms of enforcing the actual First Amendment itself on the government. Um, But when you have uh, government collusion with um, what you, I think, mostly rightly characterize as a cartel, um, then you've got an effective end run around those protections. Well, I think that's really what we have to be thinking about right now. Yeah, we need to be nervous. I I don't think that is what's happened, though, because there are explicitly free speech oriented companies springing up that would just say to Jen Psaki or Mayor Adams, you know, go stuff it. What what I think perhaps needs to be done, and I do like Marco Rubio's bill on this. I criticize Marco Rubio a lot, and I do in my new magazine piece, but I will say one thing for him. He's not a senator who grandstands and talks and does nothing else. He gets a lot done. He's pretty efficient. And he's written this bill. I don't think it will go anywhere in this Congress. That would require any federal executive agency or employee who makes a request of social media companies to divulge it. So there's not a regulatory element to the bill. But if you are, say, the press secretary or you're Joe Biden or you're Ronald Klain and you email Jack Dorsey and say, I think this person should be kicked off Twitter, then you have to register that. 
Well, transparency in government. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I I, I can't no, I actually so see too, why yeah. anyone would would object to that because, of course, there is a potential conflict of interest there in that the executive branch is also regulating Twitter. So when you know if that executive branch then sends an email saying we think you should get rid of this person and that company knows that their potential merger with Acme Corporation is being considered by the president. And yeah. Nice little business you got well, there. Right. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. Right. I would like to see that change. Yeah. Agree. I like, uh, I like transparency. And um, I am glad to see the um, competition for, for services like Twitter out there. That gives me some hope. But I do worry about the political actors just taking this one step up yeah instead of leaning on the companies that are producing these services leaning on the um, points at which they connect to the internet so it's no longer we're saying you can't be on twitter um it's we're saying if you have this alternative to twitter that has stuff that we don't like um you can't be on the internet i think that's illegal under the first amendment i would certainly like to see it entrenched in law yeah, but again, we've seen um, we've seen that effectively happen. What was it? It's Stormfront, some crazy uh, neo-Nazi uh, publication that was just their ISP wouldn't let them uh, be on anymore, and they were just unable to uh, find a way to actually be on the internet. Somewhere. Well, no, that's not quite what happened. I mean, I, I I do understand your concern, but Cloudflare, which provides DDoS protection, uh, mm. which of course is important to Stormfront because grotesque as they are, they get a lot of attacks declined to protect them any longer hmm. but they moved to a russian isp and they're still up is uh, that what happened he, he regretted it too what you're talking about is something i hear a lot as a point of concern and that's that the infrastructure of the internet would be regulated or imposed upon to such an extent that you couldn't get anything done now at the moment most of the constituent parts are common carriers so your ISP, I mean, it's not since the change in net neutrality regulations, but in effect, it is a common carrier. There is no superintendence of what, what you're looking at. The, the mistake that people who want to regulate Twitter make is they say, well, Twitter is a common carrier too, and it's not. That's just trying to shove a, a, a triangle into a, a circle. But... It would not be a bad thing, in my view, if the constituent parts of the internet, that is the ISP that connects your house to the street, the trunk line that runs down the street, and the backbone lines that connect data centers together were, by federal law, unable to discriminate against any sorts of traffic in the way that, say, uh, your telephone service is. Under the, I think it's 1934 Communications Act, you cannot, as a telephone provider, prevent, say, a neo-Nazi from making a phone call and saying horrible things on your service. Because we don't have um, a similar law for internet-based services, and because the Obama administration lost its attempt to pretend that the 1934 Communications Act applies to the internet... That law doesn't technically apply to internet services, although in effect it does because they treat themselves like that voluntarily. I would be totally happy to see a law that said, if you run an ISP or 
a trunk line or a 5G point-to-point connection service, you have to treat traffic equally. Not that you can't discriminate against it in other ways, you know, get have various levels of service for businesses or whatever or or allow first responders priority over the airwaves in an emergency but that you cannot discriminate based on viewpoint i I think it will be a good federal law i just think that it would be absurd to drill down and then say national review has to allow whatever to be said in its comments which is essentially what people who want to regulate twitter are doing to twitter that i think is a violation of their first amendment rights i mean if we want to delete people saying terrible things in our comments we have every right to do so don't you think it would be more likely we would get the opposite kind of law, though, especially in response to some sort of emergency and there's some kind of terrorist attack or some sort of uh, grotesque, spectacular crime? And it's, well, we need to keep this stuff off the Internet because it's incitement and they pretend that it's viewpoint mm-hmm. neutral. But, of course, it won't be. Yeah, because when does Congress legislate in a panic <laughs> after a terrorist attack? Yeah. And, of course, there's probably a disincentive for the Democratic Party, which is currently obsessed with what it deems to be misinformation and incitement, to acquiesce. But if we get unified Republican government in 2025 and you have some push to regulate social media, which I think is coming and will be wildly misguided, it would behoove Republicans to instead pass that law and say all of the constituent parts of the Internet that are not privately owned or that are essentially public accommodations must be viewpoint neutral get it done Hmm. well i hope you will take the time to explain this to the people who need it explained to them i'll do my best it's uh it is a hobby horse of mine i i just think we're approaching the wrong level and i think you're right to see the the issue at stake as the the backbones yeah all right well good conversation charlie i will talk to you next week all right